As the summer months continue and people are finally starting to get out of our homes, take more walks in nature, or maybe even head to the beach, a lot of advertising dollars and attention are being spent on bathing suits and summer clothing. In the days of COVID, some bikinis even have matching masks. I'm sure you've heard the question asked, is your body ready for the beach? In magazines, on TV, and all around us, we're bombarded with images of too good to be true, photoshopped to perfection, tanned and beautiful bodies, reminding us of the ways we have fallen short and the ways our bodies do not measure up to perfection. Not only are our bodies not perfect, but society contributes to shaming bodies that don't measure up to the ridiculously unrealistic expectations. According to Yes Magazine, fat shaming is stitched into the very fabric of American culture. In fact, it's so embedded in our everyday lives that we often don't recognize the ways we perpetuate fat phobia or the act of discriminating against someone because of the size of their body. I'm May Cannon, and this is Hashtag Activism. What should Christians know about the body positivity movement and fat acceptance? Body positivity is a social movement rooted in the belief that all beings should have a positive body image, while challenging the ways in which society presents and views the physical body. The movement advocates for acceptance of all bodies, regardless of physical ability, size, gender, race, appearance, or any other factor. Essence Magazine did a video about body positivity and said, it's nothing about promoting obesity and unhealthy lifestyles, but rather they describe body positivity as the revolutionary notion to embrace and appreciate your body in whatever state it's in. They continue and clarify that body positivity advocates that all bodies are valid and rids itself of societal ideas that fat, disabled, queer, or any other body that deviates from the status quo is bad or undeserving of love and appreciation. I write about this in Beyond Hashtag Activism, specifically the question of Imago Dei and what it means that our bodies are made in the image of God. Women and men around the world have long struggled from personal infliction and the expectations of others in terms of what we should look like. The expectation of what defines beauty often changes throughout the ages. Ancient Greece esteemed its women with plump bodies and full figures. The Han Dynasty desired its women with slim waists, pale skin, and tiny feet, even to the point of butchering them by binding them. The Italian Renaissance most valued full-bodied women with ample bosom, rounded stomachs, and full hips, whereas the Roaring Twenties in the United States sought women who had boyish figures and flat chests. In the 21st century, according to the science of people, the body type of Kim Kardashian is the most revered, with big and shapely bosom, a big bottom, but a flat stomach and a small waist. The expectations of women and their appearance may differ from culture to culture, but around the world, women are judged and objectified for what they look like. Kathy Kong writes in More Than Serving Tea about the expectations of Asian women to look a certain way. In writing about the desire to feel beautiful, Kong says, Asian women around the world continue to magnify Satan's whispers by willingly cutting and reconstructing their faces and bodies to achieve beauty. She describes Asian eyelid surgery that's performed so women can have a perfect crease, or how women 
known as the modori or the daikon ashi with radish-shaped calves, can have the nerve behind their knee severed in order to target a portion of the calf muscle, which results in the thinning out of the thickest part of the calf. Young women are some of the most vulnerable to eating disorders like bulimia and anorexia, which involves binging or vomiting or self-imposed starvation in attempts to achieve the perfect body type. In an era of stick-thin supermodels, Twiggy, the famous and incredibly talented Karen Carpenter, died of heart failure related to her year-long struggles with anorexia. The 1989 TV movie, The Karen Carpenter Story, implies that her anorexia began after a fan criticized her for being chubby or fat. African-American writer Roxane Gay writes about her struggles, pain, depression, and anxiety that came from expectations being placed on her by society. A deeply painful and profound story, her book, Hunger, A Memoir of My Body, tells of abuse, self-loathing, and other struggles, all on the journey to self-acceptance. She writes, On bad days, I forget how to separate my personality, the heart of who I am, from my body. I forget how to shield myself from the cruelties of the world. In Christian circles, some conservatives seem to believe that being overweight is a sin against God. The undergirding theology is that size is a direct response to the sin of gluttony or overindulgence. Here to talk with us about these questions today is J. Nicole Morgan. In October 2015, Nicole wrote an article that was published by Christianity Today called God Loves My Fat Body As It Is. The subtitle, My Weight Does Not Hurt My Witness. The article went viral, and Nicole's story was further told in a book a few years later called Fat and Faithful, Learning to Love Our Bodies, Our Neighbors, and Ourselves. As a part of the body and fat acceptance movement, Nicole is an important voice in helping us understand what it means that Imago Dei and the image of God is not only found in skinny bodies. Now, more than five years later, Nicole continues to go head-to-head with some of the voices in opposition to fat acceptance in Christian circles. I'm eager for you to hear from her. I do intentionally say the word fat, and I have reclaimed that word as a neutral descriptor of my body. So for me, it's not a value judgment. It just is a reality about the way that my body is shaped and the size of it and the actual, you know, fat that's on my body. And I definitely didn't come up with that. There's a long history of the fat acceptance movement doing that and pushing back on the narrative that fat is bad by reclaiming that word. In terms of talking about other people, if you're not talking about your own body, my advice to people is always to just to honor the people they're talking about. Love your neighbor. Some fat people aren't comfortable with that word. A good positive word to use if fat is not appropriate would be plus size. That's kind of that doesn't have the judgment that like overweight does, where there's this implied association that there's a right weight that you should be under. And then obese has this like medicalization that pathologizes fat bodies and makes us diseases instead of people. So fat, if people are okay with it, plus size is a good kind of neutral word that doesn't have the negative connotation some of the other words do. So how do you, I mean, one of the things I love about your life is your engagement with your nieces and nephews. Mm -hmm. How do you talk to kids about this? Yeah. So my oldest nephew is 
eight. He'll be nine in September. And then I have six, five, and four, um, if I'm remembering all their ages correctly. And so they've just now started getting old enough, like where they're noticing and commenting on it. But especially when they were younger, it was just or noticing and commenting on like the size of other people on my body. And so a couple trying to think, I guess it was last year. So my nephew would have been seven and we were just, we were sitting at dinner and he just looked at me and he said, you're fat or your arms are big or something like that. And I'm just, and I just, I'm like, yeah, they are. Everybody is different. And for kids, especially, they just notice things. They just notice that people are different and the world is different and they comment on it. And I think the important thing to do with kids is to just respond, like affirming their curiosity. You can say, well, what do you think about that? Or how do you have thoughts about that? And then you can explore like some of what they think it means. Like, have they yet been introduced the idea that fat equals lazy or sloppy or bad? And then you can talk about that. But otherwise, I'm just, especially with kids that I'm around a lot, I'm just very big on being present. I take my niece who lives closest to me, like we go hiking and we do things like that that are not these stereotypical fat activities. And so it's something I enjoy. It's something she enjoys. We go swimming. I splash around in the pool. Being able to do something that the world has told us is shameful for our bodies to be in those places, like in a bathing suit or outside doing recreation and giving my niece the opportunity to see me Mm. as a fat person partaking in those activities, I think is super important. I'm not talking to her about the politics of fatness as a six-year-old, but she's (laughs) seeing me, you know, living my life. And she has that counter story when she encounters that stereotype later, like I'll be a different version for her. Right. Well, and I definitely want to talk to you about some of the false presupposition about what fatness means. You know, you mentioned lazy or inactive and I've loved seeing, you know, you have a, I don't know, but periodically I've seen you post where you invite people to go on hikes and Mm -hmm. a very active lifestyle that a lot of people might assume is not true. Yeah. And I mean, I've had, you know, doctors and various people just assume, I think some people think fat people sit around all day, like eating potato chips and watching TV. And if they do, who like, whatever. People are allowed to make that choice with their life if they want to. But that assumption is rooted in this idea that fat people are inherently lazy and unhealthy and these other things. So how has this journey been for you? I mean, as you talk about, you know, your nephew making a comment about what your arms or your body looks like, what... <laughs> What's the journey to self-acceptance and fat acceptance been for you personally? And how has that affected the way you see or interact with other people? Yeah, so I stumbled into fat acceptance in college. I was looking online um, actually for like fashion advice to make myself look smaller. And Mm -hmm. I found this online community that was full of fat people, mostly women who were posting you know, their fashion and their outfits, and they were unapologetically fat. They weren't trying to hide their fat. They were just enjoying clothes and finding fashion that worked for them and sharing tips on like what stores you could find clothes at, especially, you know, back in the early 2000s, it was even harder to find fat clothes than it is now. And so that was my introduction to this idea that maybe my body wasn't wrong and wasn't something to fix. 
And so I did a lot of reading. I'm very much the person who like researches everything for a very long time. And then I make my decision um, about what I think. So I probably spent a few years just reading and thinking and like lots of Googling of medical articles um, and those types of things. And then a number of years later, when I went to seminary and I started doing some of my research there and my papers and my topics, I just kept gravitating towards this idea of embodiment and how God creates our bodies and what it means to be a fat person who's a Christian and what God might think about our body size and really dug into both scripture where it talks about feasting and fasting and gluttony and all of these in food and all these different things related to bodies and food in the Bible, as well as, you know, church history and theology around those ideas and came away with, you know, just the ver- the conviction and the conclusion that God made everyone in God's image. And that includes fat people. And that as part of a diverse and varied creation of humanity, that fat bodies have something to share with the world about who God is that a thin body might not have. And so that my body my fat body is part of God's image on earth and is created good just as I am. That's deeply theological. I mean, that sounds like an exegetical, (laughs) you know, when we talk about Genesis, right? And being created in the image of God and a Mm -hmm. day to say that that's inclusive of all body types, sizes. I mean, I think that's really profound. Yeah, there's if you look at the creation story, and I think most people know like after the first sin, there was, you know, the fig leaves and the clothes happened after the first sin, where there's the shame and you were hiding your body because of the shame. And so Adam and Eve made their clothes out of fig leaves. And then the story in Genesis is that God made them an Im- a clothing out of animal skin. And so There's this like death comes into the picture when body shame showed up, like when they needed to be covered and like God was the one who killed the animal to clothe them. And I don't, I still don't really know what to do with all that, Mm -hmm. but it's, there's all these, these layers of how body shame is so connected to this, to the original sin in our, in our story, our Christian story and unpacking that. And how do we wrestle with that for all of us, not just fat people, but Dealing with what we think about our body is something we all deal with. So what motivated you or compelled you to write your book? So Fat and Faithful, Learning to Love Our Bodies, Our Neighbors, and Ourselves. What was the compilation for that? So I grew up I grew up in a Christian, in a Christian household, and was fairly sheltered from the outside media secular world. And so I grew up in this very devout Christian environment as a fat teenager, and I have held deep shame about my body. And as I started learning about fat acceptance and hearing about everyone who, you know, would blame the media and all these portrayals of, you know, beauty and woman womanhood and like movies and music and arts and culture. And I'm like, I, that wasn't my teenage years. Like, I never know what anyone's talking about when they talk about pop culture from the 90s. And so I started investigating where my shame came from. And so much of it came from inside the church, where pastors would preach against the sin of fatness and gluttony, where they would talk about not wanting to become one of those fat and lazy preachers. There were frequently weight loss focused Bible studies that would be held at my church during our you know, I forget what we called them, but like our discipleship classes for adults. Many of them would frequently be weight loss based. 
And then there was one particular moment where I was, I was an adult by this point and I was at my church's altar and I was praying and I was crying and it was just, it was not about my body or anything about my body, but a woman came up to me to pray with me and she started praying out loud and she prayed for me to be freed from my sin of gluttony. And she had no idea, like that was not anything that was upsetting me. Um, and by this point, I was already a few years into like exploring this idea of fat acceptance and what it means. And so I just, through all of that, I was like, this is where my voice is, where there's I want my voice to be. Here. I mean, there's something, it, it sounds insidious. I mean, in yeah. you know, false theology and in the projection of, it's a lot easier for us to criticize others mm-hmm. than to be self-reflective. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have an experience where someone, you know, let alone going before the altar of God, but where someone imposes that kind of judgment, I can only imagine. Yeah. And she was also, she was also a fat woman. So I'm imagining there was some like internalized and assumed solidarity going on that it was not maliciously intended at all. But, you know, in, intention doesn't always direct results or what actually happens. Or excuse so, when, yeah. <laughs> you know someone causes harm. Yeah. So I know that this also is not just, you know, I, I think when we hear about fat acceptance, it's kind of, it feels very inclusive and it sounds almost universalist, right? Like mm-hmm. love everyone. And, but talk to us a little bit. It seems to me that there's real marginalization. I mean, I, I've been with you in some different contexts where I've seen and, and learned about ways that society interacts with people who are plus size or fat. So what's that marginalization look like? Yeah. So often oh, it's just accessibility of being able to be in a space and whether and that's often seating so I have, I think the instance you're referring to, we were both at a conference together and the chair that they had was just like, I would, I think it was broken actually, but when I would sit, like I could feel it was about to give way. And so I asked the conference if they had an, another chair and you might actually remember this more better than I do because it's not the only time it's happened to me, but they didn't. And it was just not even a concern to be able to provide that. I think actually you and I ended up... Yeah, they were kind of defensive about it, actually. (laughs) And it was like, how dare you even ask for that? And then later, like, so we were sitting at a booth that we were working. And later I walked up to the second level of the auditorium or wherever we were. And there were numerous chairs up there that were quite sufficient and could have easily been moved downstairs. And so just that their planning committee of this conference, like not even having the creativity to know or the forethought to think about seating options and where they could find alternatives. Like it was just never thought of as an issue that might've come up. Right. Um, I think that was for me, part of the the trigger of what I felt like I learned was mm-hmm. how just to give context of this location, it was a venue that regularly hosted thousands of people. It was not mm-hmm. a small, you know, little yeah. auditorium where there might not be resources. Like thousands of people come through there and the lack of um, foresight. The I think part of what really struck me too was the attitude, at least my perception of what happened was that they felt like you were being demanding, you know, mm-hmm. or that asking for something above and beyond, you know, what was reasonable. Um, Yeah, there's this idea that people shouldn't have to accommodate what a fat person needs because it's our fault. 
Like, and how dare we ask for the rest of the world to make room for us when all we need to do is lose weight and then we would fit. Um, so how can we do that better, Nicole? I mean, you know, planes, chairs, you know, just very, very basic, practical things. How can society respond to plus size people better? Yeah, I think you have to start with interrogating your own assumptions that fat equals bad. Because as long as you believe that, there's going to be part of you that just doesn't get why people don't just change their body. And so you need to... you. And, Investigate that. Um, But on practical levels, clothing, seating, and like physical space are the big things. So if you want to like, whether it's your home where you might have guests or your church building or an event, looking at the space and like literally looking at how much space there is and how sturdy furniture is. If you're having an event where you're giving out t-shirts, like what sizes are you ordering? Does your manufacturer even offer sizes that go, you know, above a 2X? Everyone thinks 2X is like this magical t-shirt size that fits everyone. It does not. And it's just there's these physical realities of things that don't fit or aren't strong enough to support people. And just looking intentionally at whatever the space is and thinking about that and asking yourself questions can do a lot just to be aware of what you need to be hospitable and welcoming to people. And can it be as simple as when you go out to a restaurant with friends sitting in a table with you know, chairs that can pull out, perhaps, as yeah. opposed to a fixed bench where there's limited space? Absolutely. Know, kind of thing. Yeah. And I I've have a few friends now who will, like, scope the restaurant out for me and, like, speak up and say, tell the waiter the, or the, the hostess, you know, point to a specific table or booth. But like trendy little spots are the worst. Mm-hmm. They have these like flimsy little chairs and they're all crowded together and you can't get through the tables and just like they crowd people in. <laughs> now that COVID's here, we're gonna have a little more space. It's great for fat people. <laughs> but yeah, like I will often, if someone wants to go to a restaurant that I've never been to, I will also often pull up like Google Maps and see if there's pictures of the interior just so I can see what the tables and the chairs look like to know like, okay, should I get there early so I can make sure there's a good seat? Is this going to work at all? Do I not need to worry about it? So I'm like doing those mental preps ahead of time whenever I'm going somewhere new. Wow. Well, and it sounds like some of um, the realities about the way society responds to fat people, they're not just these personal decisions or like you said, prepping ahead of time before Mm -hmm. you go out, but that this also plays out in the public square. So I'm distantly familiar with this interaction that happened online on Twitter between you and some of the leaders or organizers of the Liturgist podcast. Can you tell us what what that was all about? Yeah, so the Liturgist podcast, which is a podcast in like that progressive Christian space, and they they state that their purpose is to include people who are marginalized and to like center those experiences. And they released an episode a, a number of weeks ago. The original title included like fat phobia in the title, and we were ta- it was talking about body weight and size and such. The people on there's three people on the podcast: the producer Michael Gunger, one of the co-hosts of the of the liturgist, Dr. Hillary McBride, and then an expert, a nutritionist who's very highly respected in the fat acceptance community, Christy Johnson, um, who is a nutritionist, but she's also thin, and she will tell you that she's never 
been fat. She's never experienced any stigma for her body size. She's very fat, accepting, fat positive person. And so once that podcast came out, I tweeted at the liturgist and Michael and Hillary and, and said, thank you for producing an episode on this topic. And then I asked them why there was no fat voices centered on the panel and said that, you know, fat people needed to be able to tell our own stories. And it just kind of blew up from there. A lot of other people had similar thoughts. I was definitely not the only one who brought it up. The liturgist is a large online community of which I am not a part. And I know they were having many discussions where people in their community had the same and similar concerns. And the short version is Hillary McBride, you know, responded positively with an apology, said, we'll do better. That was a miss. And Michael Gunger dug in his heels and said that there was no expectation or there was no need for fat people to be part of the conversation. It involved changing the episode title so that it was about something, I don't even remember anymore, something about like our bodies instead of fatness specifically. And it was just, it took a week of back and forth on Twitter and tons and tons of uh, questions and people chiming in. And at the end, or I guess for now, the litter just released a statement saying that in their next season, that they would include an episode that centered the voice and experience of a fat person. So we will see what happens there. But it, it brought the conversation up and I had never seen the progressive Christian community defend fat people before. So for me, that was super encouraging. Um, that they were having the conversation or? Yeah, that they were having it and that like Christians, especially Christians in like progressive faith spaces, it's just, it's never been a topic that I've seen addressed or embraced in a large way by the progressive faith community. Yeah. It's, you know, not seen as an important issue. And so to just see that was like super encouraging um, to me yeah. about how far this conversation has come in the past few years. Yeah. Let alone, you talk about the progressive Christian community, let alone in the evangelical, more conservative mm-hmm. Christian community. So I would point listeners to the chapter that you wrote in the book, Evangelical Theologies of Liberation and Justice, mm-hmm. about that acceptance, you know, as a, a starting point in terms of that conversation. And, and I think, too, Nicole, it, it's helpful to hear you differentiate, you know, when you talk about the liturgist having a conversation about body image and our own self-acceptance of the way that we look or what our bodies look like, that that's very different than what I hear or, or what some of the questions or concerns are in terms of fat acceptance or fat positive. Can you help us differentiate? Yes. So struggles with body image are for sure universal. We all struggle with it to one degree or another. Often, because of the cultural context we live in, often someone's body image struggles, especially women, but more and more even men are experiencing it, is this fear of being fat. And body dysmorphia, where you like see your body as a different way than is reality, is also a very real part of this, where people think they're fat, even if they're not. And that is a important issue that needs to be addressed. And it's connected to the fat acceptance because of that fear of fatness is what's driving it. But it's Mm -hmm. very, very different than the structural anti-fatness that fat people face where we're talking about the seating at restaurants and access to clothing. And then we get into healthcare and 
you know, assumptions that your doctors make about you when you're fat or the type of healthcare that you get. Um, we're talking about job promotions and whether you get hired in the first place or not because your boss, because the interviewer sees you as lazy or unprofessional if you're fat. So those things are very different than the also very real struggle of your body image, which is also important, but is a different issue, even though there's an intersecting piece. And so changing the title of the episode from fat phobia to body image, and I should verify that that's what actually the specifics, but they took out the fat phobia from the title. (laughs) Yeah. Like if they had started there, I probably never would have made a comment because I'm very, very used to people talking about body image and ignoring the, you know, the realities that fat people face, which whatever, like that's a, it's a related, but it's a different topic. But if you're going to talk about fat phobia, you need to talk to fat people who experience fat phobia. So. And what was the situation that happened recently with the speaker of the house, Nancy Pelosi, in terms of making a fat comment? What what was that? Yeah. So she, this was like right after my whole Twitter thing with the literatist, but she commented on Donald, Donald Trump and called him, obese, and it was a dig at him. And this has come up before in criticisms of Donald Trump, that his body gets used as a way to make fun of him or dismiss him. And fat activists repeatedly say that making fun of Trump because he is fat doesn't hurt Trump, it hurts your fat friends. His fat body is not what's wrong with him. Like, Mm -hmm. I can give you a list you know, there might, the five hours. <laughs> there might be other things, but in terms of, yeah, that that's yeah. being used as a, a put down, a, a way to, yeah. Um, right. And so, yeah, and so that conversation too. came up again. And I think, what was it? Oh, right before this, at the same time, a photo of Adele, the singer came out and she yeah. looked like she had lost a significant amount of weight. And so there was all this conversation about her being somehow better or yeah, just valuing her more because she was thin, despite the fact that she was this, you know, amazing award-winning artist as a fat woman. Right. And and that seems to not have changed. I mean, we see some, some things have changed, you know, the dove campaigns where Mm -hmm. the dove models are of all different shapes and sizes. And, but I still see all the time in these social magazines, be it people or us or, but, covers of, you know, who lost the most weight mm-hmm. and how they do it. And I mean, that still seems to be so prevalent in our society. Yeah. Like changing your body from one that looks like mine to a different one is like literally headline news in tabloids. You know, it's yeah. this yeah. cause for celebration if you no longer look like I do, which can get wearing, you know, like it can, it can wear down on you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel that way myself. And I, we've talked about mm-hmm. body image between you and I in terms of my size. And I think you used the word in betweener. <laughs> yes. It's like, yeah, usually like right up like the plus size range on clothing. Like you can shop in plus size stores and regular stores sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So what in terms of your work and and being and love of self, where are the places where you experience joy in terms of your own identity in this conversation? Yeah. And I think, you know, the one that stands out to me, which is kind of almost a cliche answer, but it's true, is like, my body is 
like soft and warm and welcoming, you know, and whether that's, you know, giving a hug to a friend or being with my nieces and nephews, like my body is a place of comfort and to circle back to, you know, being made in the image of God, like fat bodies show that in a way that other bodies don't, not that other bodies aren't comforting, but that we get this fuller picture of what comfort and warmth and support looks like when we understand like how fat bodies offer that. And then also, you know, like my like stubborn side, like I like that I'm just like a little bit unmovable. Like if I decide to plant myself somewhere, you're not getting me off that spot very easily. And so this like steadfastness and this determination and like, how can I live into that intellectually and emotionally and with my words in a way that like mirrors that strength of my body and in a way that expresses that part of God who is unmoving and steadfast. How can we respond constructively to the fat acceptance movement? One place to start is by prayerfully doing an inventory of how body image and acceptance has been a part of our own journey and experience. Are there ways that we can love our own bodies better? Ways we should be less judgmental of the bodies of others? If you don't know where to get started, take a look at the resource page for this episode at my website at www.maycannon.com. Take a look at Nicole's articles and pick up her book, Fat and Faithful, and books by other fat acceptance advocates. At the end of Nicole's book, there's a great resource section that has lots of ideas about ways to get started. Listen to Nicole and her co-host, Amanda Martinez-Beck, on their podcast, Fat and Faithful, where fat women talk faith, politics, and culture as they relate to fatness. In addition to being more self-aware, another thing Nicole talks about is being more aware of diversity in size and how different situations might make fat people feel uncomfortable. Pay attention to the seating situations in restaurants, what chairs are being used at your church or in other social situations. Be a social advocate and use your voice when people might make inappropriate comments or jokes about fatness and size. Do not allow for discriminatory comments or actions toward fatness in your social circles or your community. Consider embracing and supporting the Health at Every Size movement. Health at Every Size principles include weight inclusivity, accepting and respecting the inherent diversity of body shapes and sizes, and reject idealizing or pathologizing specific weights. The second principle of health at every size is health enhancement, supporting health policies that improve and equalize access to information and services, and personal practices that improve human well-being, including attention to physical, economic, social, spiritual, and emotional needs. Three, respectful care. Acknowledge our biases and work to end weight discrimination, weight stigma, and weight bias. Provide information and services from an understanding that socioeconomic status, race, gender, sexual orientation, age, and other identities impact the stigma associated with weight. Four, eating for well-being. Promote flexible, individualized eating based on hunger, satiety, nutritional needs, and pleasure, rather than on externally regulated eating plans that are focused on weight control. And finally, the fifth principle is life-enhancing movement. Support physical activities that allow for people of all sizes, abilities, and interests to engage in enjoyable movement to the degree that they choose. 
These are just a few of the ways that we can follow the commandments of Jesus. And as Nicole says, to love our bodies, our neighbors, and ourselves. Much of the content from our conversations during episodes of Hashtag Activism come from my upcoming book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age, out with InterVarsity Press on May 26th. You can pre-order your copy today at a local bookstore like heartsandmindsbooks.com or wherever books are found.